Hello and welcome to another edition of the Strip Till Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Noah Newman, Associate Editor. Thank you to our sponsor, the Pluribus Light from Dawn Equipment. We'll have a message from them later in the podcast. Today we are headed out to Tipton, California to catch up with West Coast Strip Till pioneer Tom Barcelos. Let's jump right into the conversation. Here's Tom. Good morning. My name is Tom Barcellus, the owner of Barcellus Farms and T-Bar Dairy and partner in White Gold Dairy and Oak Valley Farms. Barcellus Farms is a diversified farming operation, farming about 1,800 acres of uh, owned and leased property, uh, mostly raising feed for our two dairies and uh, also with uh, a little bit of pistachios and citrus. Um, It's come in in the last several years uh, as a reason for diversifying. We milk 2,000 cows between the two dairies, and uh, our milk goes to Lana Lakes, which uh, primarily ends up in butter at our local plant, uh, and the balance uh, ends up in uh, powdered milk. We have about 45 employees in total between all the facilities. We've been doing conservation tillage since uh, the year 2000, which seems like an eternity ago. Hmm. Hard to believe that's 22 years. How did you... First, get into it. What were your motivations for uh, adopting conservation tillage practices? Well, it's kind of a strange story because we were right in the middle of beginning our double cropping uh, behind our wheat forage, uh, getting ready to plant corn for silage. And we were running nine tractors in all the different fields preparing. And one of our main tractors went down. There was no rental tractors available. The neighbors were all running theirs busy. And a very good friend of mine who was in the seed business, and I had purchased corn seed from him for years, had mentioned that, well, there's this no-till planter they're talking about that was north of here. And I says, well, that sounds interesting. I'd be interested in looking at it. He said, it's not doing anything. We can bring it down. And so that no-till planter showed up. It was a 10-row John Deere, uh, Max Emerge, uh, brand new. They had only done about 80 acres. And we started uh, in a field that we had irrigated. And since we hadn't been able to get to it, it was starting to dry up. And we put this thing in the ground, made three rounds. And they said, "Eh, you know, maybe this is not going to work. This ground's a little dry. It's a little tight. I looked at it and I says, keep going. So we finished planting that 80 acres and we started water right behind it. Actually, we had enough to germinate the seed as it came about uh, two inches to three inches out of the ground. uh, Ten days later, uh, we started water. And at the end of that crop, we were just amazed by it. Um, But we ended up planting 320 acres that first year. And that first crop, that first 80 acres, yielded 27 ton to the acre, which was more than that field normally did because of the type of soil, our ability to get water across it timely. Um, and it was uh, it was a done deal. I was sold. Wow. Right away. Year number one. Yeah. Well, what about your soils out here and that, that make something like no-till uh, beneficial for your operation? Well, one thing that we have is every soil type you can imagine. Um, And you don't have to go far to get this variation, but primarily we're sandy loam. 
that's what the bulk of our soils are, but we have, we have these uh, sandier streaks that come through it because, you know, we're in a valley. Uh, we have mountain ranges just to the west of us. I mean, I'm sorry, to the east of us, um, you know, about 10 miles away. And there were sloughs and all kinds of different things. And over the years, the land has been leveled, laser leveled. And uh, you can look at uh, topographical maps of crops and you can see where those uh, little sloughs snake through many, many fields. We have a considerable amount of alkali soil, high pH. We need to, uh, you know, adjust that down. Uh, that's what's been so beneficial with the dairies in this area because we use its natural organic fertilizer. And so we spread this manure on these fields at agronomic rates. And, uh, you know, we were deep ripping, you know, trying to get the soil broken up and, and getting the manure worked down into deeper depths. And we're doing, uh, you know, raising very good crops and, and really improving the soil. But between every crop, we were doing eight, nine, 12 passes of tillage of some sort, you know, whether it was disking, floating, sometimes plowing, uh, you know, putting up levees, little borders and things. Uh, we were just always had tractors running. Uh, when I determined that this no-till was going to work that first year, we only ran one tractor. And the second year, I had bought a track, I bought a planter, and I planted 3,000 acres. Wow. Between mine and my neighbors that all wanted to try it. Sadly, a couple of them failed, but it wasn't the planter or the operations fault. It was the grower's fault for not being out in his field and irrigating and thinking that, like, hey, wow, this is easy. You still have to spend the time with it. Um, they didn't irrigate in time. Uh, and uh, just had some challenges, but it has flourished since. Everybody's kind of got it figured out. And the soil types, you can use, we basically strip-till everything now. I mean, as far as not 100% no-till, there's a little bit of that. Um, we do wheat or oats no-till into our existing alfalfa when it's time to take that alfalfa crop out. And uh, when you do that, when that crop comes off, that soil is so mellow um, as opposed to trying to tear out a hay field that's just tough. So there's benefits all across the board in different fashions and different ways for every operation that we, we do. So you started no-tilling in 2000. Now you mentioned you strip-till as well. When did you start strip-tilling and what's your experience been like with uh, strip-tilling? Well, the strip-tilling, we actually started the third year. And... Um, and that was because it basically gave us more of a cushion. When, uh, when I was running really hard on no-till, um, we were basically running the planter 20 hours a day. And most of those hours were at night because come 2 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, the soil starts tightening up, you know, the sun is baking down on it, and... Uh, the the no-till is just the planter penetration was different um, and then so you shut down for four to six hours you know after dark you could go back and go again and it's back to the way you'd like it so the strip till 
you know, with that soil tillage in just that small strip just made it a lot easier. And granted, we're running another tractor, but on certain soils, you we would get the corn out of the ground sooner and better. Um, you know, it wouldn't be so tight that uh, you'd get better initial root development. So there was a purpose. You know, over time, the soils improved because we weren't beating them to death anymore. So the no-till still uh, has its place. But again, everybody kind of leaned more towards the strip tilling because easier water penetration and, and more cushion, more flexibility on your planting. That the timing wasn't quite so critical. Yeah, a lot of the strip tillers we talked to in the Corn Belt area, a lot of them build their strips in the fall. Some do it in the spring as well. What's your schedule like out here? Are you strip it, strip tilling in the fall, spring, both, or what's it like out here in, in the Fresno area? Oh, it's way different. <laughs> different ball game out here, completely. Yeah, completely ca- different. California, we're kind of kind of animals of our own. Um, but so what happens? Uh, you know, in November, December, uh, we're planting our winter crop. You know, uh, let's just say we're planting wheat, and we're going to forage it off. So we get it planted. We get winter rains, uh, you know, if you have a dairy, you have a certain amount of uh, uh, lagoon water, dairy water that you need to dispose of. Uh, so you irrigate that crop because, you know, we get on average about nine inches of rainfall. Most of it comes during the winter. You know, by the end of February, 1st of March, the rain is over and it doesn't come again until late October, sometime November. So we have to irrigate. And so we get to April or so. If you want to take the wheat off in a boot stage for forage, you know, you're taking it off first part of April. If you're going to let it go to a soft dough, uh, you get a little more tonnage. Everybody has preferences. Uh, sometimes you do it just for the sake of being able to get it chopped off and ensiled because you have a lot to do. So you take some off at boot. You get started strip tilling right then. And then you pre-irrigate. And then you go plant in your strip till. More recently, uh, some people are, because of tight water, uh, we're actually flashing water over the field and then strip tilling and planting immediately. So sometimes now, because of water situations being difficult, some people are flashing water over the field, then strip tilling and planting immediately uh, as soon as you can get back on the soil. And uh, that, again, with uh, plenty of moisture uh, to get the seed up and going, uh, you don't get as much water penetration, so you may have to irrigate sooner. But that's just a management deal that you have to do regardless. You know, you just you have more time to watch your crop because you're not sitting there running all this equipment. Um, so by April, May, all of the wheat has been chopped off, has been, is already planted back to corn, then off you go. In July and August, the corn starts coming off, depending on when you got it planted. And some guys, they kind of drag their feet because it's just too easy. And we, you know, we're still finishing up chopping silage right now. Uh, sorghum, actually, most of the corn is already done. But it was also uh, strip tilled as well because it came in behind a later crop. It was actually one field that we're going to be chopping soon, uh, was strip tilled into an alfalfa field that needed to be rotated out. What about your nutrient management plan? Well, we put down a starter and it's based on what the field requirements are. 
I mean, it's a, it's a basic NPK with micronutrients, uh, some guano. Uh, again, it's a full spectrum uh, starter fertilizer. If we have dairy lagoon water available uh, to irrigate with, uh, naturally we'll cut back considerably on our nitrogen. You know, when we get the, uh, you know, nights 60 days into the corn, corn cycle, uh, we're side dressing uh, UN32 or a blend. It all depends what's really necessary. But the fact is it takes it in so quick, uh, you know, with our flat surface irrigation versus our little uh, uh, row irrigating, uh, things just seem to work better. Uh, of course, then you're looking at your pesticides. We have less pesticide pressure because the plant gets such a quick jump start. Uh, and earlier in the season. So fertilizer program, you know, is basically the same as anyone else. But, you know, in California, we don't put on winter fertilizer and plant in the spring. You know, we put it on at planting and then we'll do a side dress uh, as needed. And then how do you determine how much is needed? Do you do soil sampling or? Yeah, everything is soil sampled or, you you know, you'll do a, a leaf analysis, petiole, different things, uh, depending what crop you're dealing with. But yeah, we, we only put on what we need when we need it. Um, you know, anymore, it's just like everybody else. It's just too expensive not to manage that program as close as you can. Strip till and no-till in this area, yeah, you were one of the first ones to do it, if, if not the first, correct? Yes. Well, what are the trends you've seen over the years? Are more people doing it now? Or when you first started doing it, were people like, what in the world is he doing yeah, well, the first year that I did it, everybody thought I was nuts, but I'm used to that. It's nothing new. Um, but we had so many people coming by looking at it that first year. And like I said, I did 320 acres that first year. I mean, I was sold on it after we did the first three rounds. It says, park all the other tractors. This is what we're going to finish out with. And and our yields were, were as good uh, or comparable to what our conventional was uh, with one pass uh, versus nine getting it, you know, worked up and planted. Uh, plus, I think a big difference is the fact that we had it in two to three weeks earlier. We took the wheat crop off and here we are, we're planting corn uh, as opposed to working soil for two and a half, three weeks pre-irrigating and then getting back in there. I think that had a lot to do with it as well. The second year, uh, you know, I bought my own planter and doing 3,000 acres, everybody took for granted that it was that easy. That's why there was a couple of failures uh, by different people. I tried to coach as much as I could, but I couldn't get around to everything. And so some guys started knocking it. Uh, they quit doing it. But about three or four years later, they're back doing it and doing it right because they saw the successes their neighbors were having uh, on those different soil types and everything. So um, acre-wise, I know that Jeff Mitchell has done some calculating on how many acres are under conservation strip till, uh, and it's a lot. It's a lot. Uh, all of my neighbors do it to some degree, not on 100% of their ground, but on some. Uh, so I say it's been very, very successful. 
Let's burn a timeout. Thank our sponsor, the Pluribus Light from Dawn Equipment. Dawn is bringing today's innovative farmers a new strip-till product from the regenerative ag-focused underground agriculture brand. The Pluribus Light is priced like a strip freshener, but it offers the features and performance to be used in the fall or spring as a primary strip tiller or strip freshener. Check out the Pluribus Light at dawnequipment.com. Now, back to the conversation. Let's talk about equipment. Uh, what are you using no-till planter-wise, uh, strip-till-wise? Just kind of give us the rundown of your arsenal of equipment. Okay, so, you know, you pulled in, and I think you probably figured out that I'm a John Deere guy. I saw that, yeah. I got that vibe. <laughs> yeah, so uh, a big reason for that is because my John Deere dealer is only four and a half miles down the road. Um, but, uh, you know, they've, they've had the good equipment. Uh, you know, I've been farming for 47 years and you know my my first planter was a john deere planter and they've always had excellent units so my no-till planter was was a john deere you know we had the uh, uh the cleaners on the front the wavy culture you know for penetrating the soil and uh you know it was already the max emerge uh and i've got 10 row and eight row, uh, configurations. Um, we have the, uh, mounted fertilizer culture on as well. So we do everything in one pass and, uh, it, it really works well. Our strip till bars. I have a Orthman one tripper that I've used for since the third year. Uh, and it's got, I can't even begin to tell you how many acres it's got on it. Uh, and we also have a Bingham Brothers uh, strip till bar. And we find that, you know, different, uh, they're configured some, a little differently, um, you know, but we we actually find that one works better in certain soils than others. And, you know, that's because of their wavy cultures, because of their little chisel point and the things that make it happen. Uh, so we have places that we use one and other places we use the other. Um, and that's kind of it in a nutshell. Our side dressing rigs are the, uh, the John Deere liquid fertilizer coulters, the same as we use on our no-till planter. The reason for that is because you only carry one set of spares. You know, it just makes it simple. You're, you're faced with a lot of regulations out here in California when it comes to water specifically. What kind of challenges does that present to you and how have you kind of had to be resilient over the years to be successful? Well, up until 92, we had lots and lots and lots of water. And um, then the federal government passed a law, the Central Valley Project Improvement Act, uh, which diverted some of our surface water uh, to environmental uses, you know, going out towards the Delta in uh, San Francisco Bay and ultimately ending up in the ocean. Um, and the surface water is what actually made this area because uh, you know, we only get nine inches of rain, uh, rainfall, and we get it in the wintertime. So it's, it's completely different than, you know, the Midwest where, you know, you have rain, you know, mostly at optimal times and sometimes not. But, um, you know, we're not really working hard to try to keep residue on top to hold moisture because we had surface water. And so as a surface water kind of dwindled down depending on what 
year type we had, our surface water comes from snowfall uh, in our mountains directly here to the east. And so we were pretty well flush with water, like I said, until 92. Some of it then started getting diverted back down certain rivers and out. So we had to get a little more creative. We'd become more water efficient. But in recent years, based on a couple of droughts, uh, 2014, 2017, and recently now, we haven't had any surface water during our irrigation times. And, you know, we actually had about 15% of our ground went unplanted this summer because, you know, we just didn't have water available. The state has implemented three years ago proposition passed by the people called the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. And so now we're limited on what we can pump out of the ground and the costs are starting to get pretty high. It's really taking shape this year because the programs that we have to meet what we short acronym SIGMA, Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, limits the amount of groundwater we can pump and it comes at a severe cost if you go over. You do have some flexibility, but at the end of the day, there's an adjoining district that has a plan that if it receives no surface water and you wanted to farm uh, your typical crop that takes, say, three acre feet of water to produce, it's going to cost you $800 an acre in water costs. Wow. And that's what you're paying for the water. That doesn't include your utilities for pumping, uh, you know, getting that water moved around, uh, labor, anything else. That's just $800 an acre. And I know guys in the Midwest are going to going to say, what? Yeah, definitely. When, when they when they looking for the rainfall. But it's it's creating it's going to create some real challenges. It's going to create uh, uh, ground that's not farmed and, you know. Thankfully, I'm in an irrigation district with surface water, uh, but I don't have to drive very far to get to some neighbors that are not part of an irrigation district and have no surface water. Uh, their only source is pumping, and there's there are places that are being sold for that reason. Yeah, have you, have you noticed um, a lot of dairy operations having to relocate out of state or there's quite a few that have moved out of California. California is not a very agricultural friendly place to do business because we're, you know, we've got regulation after regulation after regulation. And specifically, you know, our feed costs have gone up considerably uh, in the last couple of years. And, you know, we have guys that have just said, you know, I can, I can sell my dairy operation and open land to, an investor group that wants to plant almonds or pistachios for a tremendous amount of money. And I can go out of state and buy for half. Uh, not unlike the exodus out of Southern California uh, in the early eighties, when the dairy business in the Chino basin was selling land by the square foot and buying it up in this area, farther North by the square mile. Um, you know, it just the economies change and, uh, you know, opportunities present themselves. Uh, I have a friend at Dairies in Nebraska that used to be here. Uh, have one that was just west of Fresno, is now in Tennessee. Um, many have gone to Texas. Uh, many have gone to Idaho. 
um, several in Utah. They just uh, decided I can get this for what I have here, and I have no ties. Uh, you know, myself, I born and raised here. Uh, most of these guys were transplanted from someplace before they came here, and it's no big deal to transplant again. Um, so, yeah, there's there's a lot of history here, um, you know, and like I said, I, I have all of my families here. Uh, my kids are all, I had three girls and uh, one of them's partners with us in one of the dairies and my son-in-law is farm manager and does a tremendous job. Uh, I have uh, grandkids are already running equipment, baling hay, uh, running GPS tractors, doing stuff. You know, my other two daughters are within miles of here. Uh, you know, we get yeah. together every Sunday and makes it hard to leave when you have all the family. Here. You can't, you can't just pick up and run. Not for me. Well, the conservation tillage practices, how, how much does that, do those help you kind of be resilient and handle some of these challenges that you might face? Huge. It's been huge. Uh, just, just the cost of fuel in California by being able to run two tractors, one on a strip till bar and one on a planter. Uh, you know, it's, we're paying $7, a little of seven nineteen dollars uh, for diesel fuel today. Uh, not long ago, it was four. Uh, you know, we run low beds for hire too. We move our equipment, plus we haul for neighbors. Uh, we haul commodities uh, to different dairies locally. And, you know, we have to put a fuel surcharge on to, otherwise you're going backwards. Um, labor. It's just gotten difficult. Uh, you know, there's too many uh, opportunities for people to stay home. You know, they keep extending and increasing unemployment benefits. Um, you know, somebody can go work a job for a week and manage not to do a good job and get laid off saying, I'm sorry, but it's just not going to work out. And all of a sudden now they can, they'll go file for unemployment again and you know, that's their plan. And there's a lot of people that just don't want to work. So it's challenging. There's there's too many handouts in California. Yeah, I mean, you're, it sounds like you're dealing with a whole uh, different set of challenges than, than a lot of the farmers we talked to back in the Corn Belt area. One of the things that has some bearings, too, is that, you know, we need labor. Okay, I have a friend in the Midwest that he actually works for a John Deere dealership and he farms on the side <laughs> and, you know, a lot of acreage, you know, but they'll go in with a, you know, eight wheel drive, big John Deere tractor, you know, and a, and a 60 foot disc or, or harrow or something. And boom, he knocks out section after section and, you know, put somebody on it at night, somebody on it during the day. And, you know, they basically farm part time because he'll work two weeks and have the crop in and then he goes back to the dealership. Uh, you know, here we're seems like we're working year round and, you know, we do multiple crops. Uh, you know, in California, there's over 400 agricultural crops raised. And if you go to Kansas, what is there? Four? 
Yeah. And that's, primarily that I could think of. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, interesting that I had bought a, uh, a spray rig out of, uh, Illinois and the farmer that I bought it from, um, had three major pieces that he traded one each year, a sprayer, a combine and a tractor. <laughs> and each year he'd trade one of those off in a cycle and, um, you know, and he get his crop planted and get his wheat, his soybeans or his corn. And that was his three crops. And he had a rotation, you know, of some sort with that. So yeah, it's a different world, but, uh, I wouldn't trade it for anything. And it, it seems like every busy season never ends out here, right? You know, back in the, in the corn belt in the Midwest, you know, you have the winter, but here it seems like it never stops. Yeah. And, and we have, we have the weather that makes us do that. Um, so people freak out when I tell them that we'll get eight cuttings of alfalfa every year. And, you know, the first one may be green chopped off and put in a bag for feed. But every 28 to 30 days after that, we're cutting and baling hay. Um, and you can't grow that crop that fast in most places. You just go over the mountain range here to Nevada and they'll get three. Uh, you know, it's, uh, we, we have a lot of things that are great and we have a lot of things that cause us stress, like being too busy all the time. <laughs> I, 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 it's interesting that you said you, uh, you harvested pistachios. Tell us a little bit more about that. Cause that's unique. We don't really hear about that a lot. Yeah. So I had a pistachio harvesting business for like 12 years with a friend of mine. Um, he finally got old and retired. I told him I'm not that old yet. <laughs> um, yeah, so we had uh, some acreage, plus we did a lot of outside harvesting. And, uh, you know, we were actually doing prunes, uh, primarily started out harvesting prunes. And so we have this shaker that goes up to the tree and wraps around it and shakes the fruit off, captures it and elevates it into a four by four bin. And, you know, then you unwrap and go to the next tree. When the bin is full, it kicks it off the back and starts loading another one. Uh, and then we have bin carriers that deliver empty bins to the harvester and then picks up the full ones. And then the full ones get loaded on a trailer. Uh, in, in the pistachios, they get dumped into uh, a set of grain hoppers uh, but on the prunes, the bins themselves would go to the dryer and get unloaded and dumped there. And then we'd bring empty ones back. Um, but, you know, it was a multi-man operation, too. We were running four shakers and and uh, three bin carriers. And just starts uh, the prunes we started with were in August. And as soon as we finished the prunes, we reconfigured them a little bit, uh, changed the pads for different size tree trunks. Uh, and then go do the pistachios and, uh, you know, late September and, uh, be done mid October. Hmm. Well, anything else you'd like to add about, about your operation that you think people should know or, or lessons learned about strip till no till over the years? Well, one thing that I've learned and I learned this early on in life, even before I started my own business is that every year is different. And I think that's what keeps us engaged and makes it interesting. We look at different ways 
to make things work. I mean, we've got so many options of what we can do with the equipment that we have available um, and the technology. Um, because I'll have to tell you what really made the strip till work here in California uh, when it came was because we were able to plant Roundup ready corn and because we weren't doing any cultivation. Everything that we did prior to that was in furrows, plant the corn on the beds, and then we'd furrow up for weed control. And, you know, we didn't have that option of chemical cultivation. We ended up using less harsh chemicals to, for weed control. Um, the, our timing was much better because with the irrigating methods, we were able to get across fields faster with water. And so we could get back on them quicker uh, and really make our timing work. The one constant is that things always change. All right, that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Strip Till Farmer podcast. Thanks once again to our sponsor, the Pluribus Light from Dawn Equipment. Head to dawnequipment.com to learn more. Thanks to Tom Barcellos for taking the time to chat with us. Thank you, of course, as always, for tuning in. And remember, until next time, for all things Strip Till, head to striptillfarmer.com. My name is Noah Newman. Have a great day. <laughs>